The following program deals with a controversial subject. The theories expressed are not the only possible interpretation. Viewers are invited to make a judgment based on all available information. This is your captain speaking. We are beginning our descent into madness. Open, open, your, 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 my, my, my. And we're back to another edition of West of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. I know it's late, but man, oh man, do we have a very exciting show lined up for everyone tonight. To my left, I have Genevieve. Genevieve, how are you doing on this fine Sunday evening? I'm doing very well. I'm I'm looking forward to this interview, so of course I'm doing well. How are you? I'm really excited. This topic, I'll be honest, I've been fascinated with it since I was a kid, and I can't believe that we finally have a documentary out there that really puts all the info really together in a nice, neat little package. And uh, it was great for me to kind of revisit the story. But honestly, before I keep rambling on, because as you can tell, I'm really excited and I can't wait to dive into this. I'm going to throw it to you so that you can intro tonight's guest. Tonight, um, we'll be interviewing Jeremy Kenyon Lockyer Corbell. And he is indeed a man of many talents. Born in 1977 here in Los Angeles, California, He's best known as a contemporary artist, as well as an investigative filmmaker, though he also boasts a career in martial arts, being a black belt in jiu-jitsu. Cobell attended the University of California, Santa Cruz, graduating with a degree in quantum studies. His film career has seen him make a number of experimental and documentary films over the years. In 2015, he launched his investigative film series titled Extraordinary Beliefs by Jeremy Kenyon Lockyer Cobell. The series is a multi-project film endeavor with an artful approach to complex topics and investigations. Corbell explores the extraordinary beliefs of enigmatic people deep within the aerospace, military, conspiracy, extraterrestrial, and underworld communities. Topics include advanced nanotechnology, non-lethal weaponry, off-world technologies, space travel, and extraterrestrial contact. This research has taken him into the worlds of nanotechnology, aerospace exploration, exotic propulsion systems, UFOs, the mystery of Skinwalker Ranch, and what he calls the phenomenon. He has documented the surgical removal of alleged off-world alien implants, and with access to NASA, he has filmed the analysis of anomalous metamaterials, alleged to be a physical evidence of extraterrestrial nanotechnology from UFO landing sites. Corbell has obtained deathbed confessions from former CIA and government intelligence officials who claim to expose the truth about the UFO reality and its cover-up. Corbell's films reveal how ideas held by credible individuals can alter the way we experience reality and help us to reconsider the fabric of our own beliefs. On tonight's show, we'll be focusing on his 2018 documentary, Bob Lazar, Area 51 and Flying Saucers. With that, I would like to warmly welcome Jeremy Corbell onto West of the Rockies. Jeremy, can you hear us okay? Yeah, Genevieve, Frank, thanks for having me on. Hey, it's a pleasure. We're really excited that you can make it and uh, join us tonight because, as I said, this story, the, the Bob Lazar story, has been one of the, the ones that has stuck around. And Bob has been a bit of, of a hermit in regards to this aspect of his life. So I'm really excited that you're here with us and that we can dive into this incredible, incredible story. 
Yeah, Historia captured the imagination of the world back in 1989, and it hasn't slowed down. And he's been hard to get to talk about it. You know, the UFO topic has done nothing good for his life. And he did come forward in the film, and it's quite spectacular. So I feel really honored to be able to tell the story that I always wanted to tell as a child. And that is really a great way to start this interview because, as you mentioned, this happened 30 years ago. It's unbelievable. I remember being a kid watching this stuff on TV, and I can't believe I'm aging myself, I know. Uh, but I can't believe it's been 30 years. Where does your story with Bob Lazar begin? Probably like everybody else's story with Bob Lazar, you're a, a young kid, or at the time I was a young kid, and I heard this guy come on the radio and talk about a propulsion system. This is what really interested me. It wasn't a reactionary system. It was a field propulsion system, a gravity wave amplification system. So this idea of a craft traversing time space where you don't have to worry about the amount of time right, that it takes to get somewhere, that blew my mind. That really excited me. And I was just 13 at the time, but that's how my story with Bob really started was like everybody else, hearing him tell this exceptionally wild story. The reporter, the inv investigative journalist who uh, broke this story was none other than George Knapp. And um, he's very well known in, in these circles. How did you connect with George? So George is now uh, and has been for, for many years a, a mentor to me in journalism. We've worked together on a number of projects, uh, as you can tell by kind of my films and, and what I've been doing. And really how I connected with George was I, I had been talking with everybody about the Bob Lazar story. I had been filming people that were on the peripheral to this whole story. I kind of knew a lot of the people involved at that point. And I just went for it and started calling his news station and hounding him. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it was a little bit crazy, but I, I just kept going for him. And, I was, and so finally, one day, I get a call from his producer and he's like, look, I'm going to give you five minutes. I'm going to get you on the phone, but you got to know exactly what you want. And then next thing I know, click, there's George. <laughs> so the pressure was on. And I told him, look, very sincerely, I've been following this story. I'm very serious about it. I'm making you know, my first films right now. And I, I would like to know how it went down from his perspective. And he took this long pause and he says, okay, here we go. And he just launches into this long, you know, story and just kind of gave me the whole briefing. And, and you know, it grew from there and it filmed with George, just went on and on and on. But even he challenged me. You'll see in my film, he challenges me to try to get Bob Lazar on film, to try to get him on camera, because just people couldn't do it. On that note, um, how did you really get someone like um, Bob Lazar to talk about this topic after so many years and not wanting to? Well, Genevieve, I have a very charming personality to begin. And additionally, I think I'm just very persistent I, I, and lucky. Uh, I had kind of let it be known that I was interested to talk to him. And, you know, he's not, he's, he was not interested. Uh, George Knapp was the only one over the 25 years before I met Bob. George Knapp's the only one that could get him to come forward for five minutes at a time to update, you know, give a little update on his story. And then I had a, a chance encounter. I was actually filming with another gentleman named John Lear, who's kind of known as the godfather of conspiracy. He's got some wild, you know, conspiracies. Right. And at that time, Bob ended up coming over to visit and say hi and seen him in you know a long time and when he came over i 
I, I was talking with him and I said, look, Bob, I grew up hearing your story. Is there any way I could turn the camera on? I, I just think people need a few minutes, just, just an update. And that, that, was, uh, that was about five years ago. And he let me. And so I was able to kind of give to the public in free form, you know, a new three minutes of direct testimony from Bob Lazar. And I think he began to, to see what I was about, the way I handled that. And over time, you know, we became friendly. And I told him, look, I'm here. If you ever want to tell the story, otherwise, and I think I convinced him of this. I said, otherwise, the way your story has been twisted and disemboweled and mutilated by the, the public and, and by people inserting their own fiction into what it is you said, that's going to live on. That's the future. That's going to be your legacy unless you come forward and tell your story again. Because 30 years later, we know more now than we did then. And I think over time, he kind of got annoyed at the way people were you know, lying about what he said, and and he wanted to at least set the record straight to the best degree that we could, and and I think that's what did it. You know, one of the things that struck me about Bob Lazar watching your documentary was that he seems to be naturally uh, gifted with just this understanding of science. What stood out about him when you met him in person? Right, I, I think that's really the aha moment for people. It, it's funny, George used to say this, he goes, you gotta know Bob in order to understand his story. The moment you meet Bob, his story becomes plausible. And I never really understood what George was, what, what he meant by that, you know? Uh, you know, one of the biggest critics or critiques of, of Bob's story is that he can't prove his education. I mean, that's a whole rabbit hole if you go down it. You know, he can't prove. There's George has tried for 30 years. I've tried. We can't prove his education. So the, the problem there is with or without a formal education, you have this exceptionally intelligent, uh, obviously and clearly honest in his nature, an honest person. And I, I started to understand that because I got to know his family, his friends, everybody around him. It, you know, people that are liars or con men, the closer you get to their inner circle, the more people have that have been burned. I mean, that's just the nature of it. I found the exact opposite with Lazar. Just today, I got off the phone with somebody that worked with Bob Lazar at Fairchild Industries. This is way, this is like 1982. This is way before he was Bob the UFO guy, before he worked out at Area 51, before he's even in Nevada. And this guy called me today just to tell me, I saw your movie. I want to tell you, I don't know about Bob's claims, but I worked with him. He was honest, he was straightforward, and he was exceptionally gifted. He said that the, the thing about Bob, a lot of people talk about stuff. Bob actually does it. And he remembered and recalled to me how Bob would bring his jet cars, like actual cars with these you know, incredible jets built into them and how sophisticated it was. And this guy's an engineer who worked for the government, you know, for the last, he's 70 something years old now. He worked, you know, for the government for decades uh, in scientific capacity. And he's like, I don't know the details of Bob's story that he's telling now, but I can tell you as a character Bob Lazar was a fascinating individual. He was scientifically minded. He could do things that none of us could do back then. And so I find testimony like that really compelling, very interesting about the character of Bob Lazar. One of the things that also uh, I found interesting in the documentary was that 
when uh, the question was posed to to Bob about you know why did he think that he was uh, handpicked to work in Area Fifty One. He said that he thought that perhaps they needed somebody that could think outside the box. And I think that also gives you an insight into the type of, uh, I mean, I know that he's a humble guy. He probably wouldn't agree with me using the word genius. But I mean, compared to me and the rest of the mere mortals in the world, <laughs> he is, uh, you know, like a genius when it comes to science and, and what he does. I, I once asked him, you know, how did you know? So his, his very first vehicle he ever got, his mom told me this story. You know, he got the, his first car and he's a young kid. By the next morning, he had almost gutted the car of all the things that were not necessary in quotes, right? Mm -hmm. So it would, it would go faster. Somehow this guy, and I asked him, how did you know how to do this as a kid? How did you know to completely disassemble a car, change the carburetor, all this stuff? Had he ever worked on cars? He goes, no, I hadn't. I don't know. It just made sense to me. So when you say you know, someone's like a genius, yeah, I mean, I guess that's a good definition. The guy just has these abilities that come from the way that his mind works. But let's slow down a second just for your audience who might not know who Bob Lazar is. Let me just give you the you know 30-second version so people understand who we're talking about. Uh, in 1989, a man came forward on camera on KLAS News with a reporter, a young reporter at the time, named George Knapp. And he came forward in silhouette. You couldn't see his face. And he went under a, a false name, under the name Dennis, which was actually the name of his, his boss at Area 51, or actually at Site 4 at Area 51. And he came on the news, and he says, he didn't say his name, but he says, I'm coming forward because I'm worried about my well-being and the well-being of my family. I have been working at a sub-base of Area 51 called Site 4, and at that base... I was tasked with attempting to reverse engineer or back engineer alien propulsion, an alien spacecraft, a, a saucer, a flying saucer, a UFO, that was not from here. And I was tasked at trying to back engineer these systems. And for a lot of reasons, you know, the, the job has kind of gone sideways. And I'm coming forward to try to get it all out in one moment so that I can protect myself. And so that I can just say it all at one time. So that was the first we ever heard about this idea of this back engineering at Area 51 of alien spacecraft. And then nine months later, George Knapp convinced him to show his face, tell his name, and that's and the rest is history. That that story went global. It went worldwide. The reason you know about Area 51. And the reason it's a household name and the reason you associate these flying saucers, these classic discs with Area 51, that's because of Bob Lazar. And from there, Area 51 has become a meme and has gone all around the world from shot glasses to beef jerky to baseball teams to postcards. It's the Nevada symbol. I mean, it's amazing. All of that happened because of Bob Lazar in 1989 going on the news with George Knapp. And that's history. And linking that to the discussion uh, regarding his credibility, it was mentioned uh, in the documentary that the evidence that he's telling the truth outweighs the evidence that he's not. Um, and, you know, you talk about there having been no news articles or TV reports about um, a lot of the things that he mentions, um, such as S4. Correct. So that was a statement by me in the movie because that has been my experience. I have looked into this story 
probably more than almost any other individual on the planet. And what I have found is that the evidence supporting Bob Lazar's claims outweighs the evidence against it. There are things that Bob knew that just, they strike you. How did he know? How did he know if he never worked there? How did he know if he didn't work on these alien spacecrafts? So there's a number of things and I can go through the list on on what those things are. But I think overall, the statement is important that from my perspective, what I've learned from Bob is that I can't discount what he's saying. I have to listen to it. None of his friends, people that knew him before he was Bob the UFO guy, nobody has ever come forward to contradict what he's saying. In fact, it's the opposite. Everybody had lived through it with him at that time, when he was afraid for his life, when he was working out at the base, and they support what he's saying. So it's it's a personal choice. So you know, both of you and your audience, you need to decide for yourself reality. You need to decide for yourself, is Bob Lazar worthy of your trust? And I I hope that my movie gives you insight into his character because that's what's been missing for these last 30 years. Everybody knows the basics of the story, although there are new things that I discovered and uncovered in my film. But what you really get is you get an insight into the daily life of an individual with an extraordinary claim. And the idea is that you can look at it and decide for yourself if he's worthy of your trust. And this is what I love about the documentary, as we were talking about just now. It's You do get to see that other side of Bob Lazar. He purposely stayed outside of the uh, of the spotlight when it comes to the, the whole UFO thing. And I know that for a lot of the uh, researchers out there, they kind of saw that as a bit suspicious. I guess they would expect somebody to talk about this at every opportunity. However, I can totally understand his worry and his concern. But let me address something or give you a chance to address something if we could. One of the uh, critics of Bob and his story has been uh, the physicist uh, Stanton Friedman. And I remember we we bumped into Stanton at a UFO conference out in Joshua Tree a few years back. And uh, we were just talking about random things and the subject of Bob Lazar came up. And I asked him, you know, like what his take was on that. And he was pretty hung up on the uh, lack of records as far as like school records and things like that. After watching your documentary, Genevieve and I were discussing it. And Genevieve brought up a point that perhaps... and going down this kind of conspiracy rabbit hole, perhaps when Bob and anybody else that was employed at Area 51, when they began working there, is it possible that maybe the government as some type of like reassurance or security thing, maybe they deleted his records? I mean, what is the theory behind the lack of a paper trail for Bob? Right. So this has always been, there's a couple of things I want to address. I mean, first of all, you've got, you know, Stan Freeman, you know, who's not a PhD physicist, by the way, he's, he's not a PhD. Right. And, you know, he's, he's been on the, you know, circuit touring, doing UFO lectures and, and that kind of thing. You know, Bob works in scientific capacity every day. I, I've seen him, he works at, he is a scientist. Some of the damage that, that Stan did, because look, he only went an inch deep. He tried to reconfirm some of the stuff that George Knapp already confirmed back in 1989. You know, Stan 
kind of has applied. He, I call him the Duke of the double standard. You know, he kind <laughs> of applied the, uh, the the you know a, a different model of looking at the Lazar story than he does even his own research, and that's very deceptive. That's like something you know the the UFO debunkers of past would do, like Phil Class or something like that. So I honestly, it's it's a it's a real shame. I've seen Stan try to to do things like turn Richard Dolan into like, you better have the right opinion on Lazar. It was one of the first things he ever said to Dolan. And Dolan told me that story. Wow. It's 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 really like he has a personal vendetta. Like he doesn't want any other like physics smart physicist around or something. I don't know, but what he did was kind of change the 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 conversation and and create these kind of memes and these ideas that you know oh Bob Lazar is not a physicist. You know he's a, he must have been a janitor or something. He he's the one that started these things. It's so sad because in the UFO field, you know we should apply the same standards to everything. I'm not saying believe Bob Lazar, but I'm certainly not creating false memes about him. So that's really disappointing. But, you know, let's let's look at this story a little bit. So we can't prove everything about Bob Lazar. We never have been. George has not been able to. However, remember this. When George Knapp in the very first report, you know, he said, we can't prove his, his educational background. However, Bob Lazar claims that he was a physicist at Los Alamos, right? So this is something. Now, Los Alamos denied that he ever worked there. So that George is like, wow, maybe this guy's lying. And he started digging deeper. Well, guess what? Bob Lazar took George Knapp into Los Alamos. George Knapp also interviewed other employees at Los Alamos. I have interviewed other employees at Los Alamos who worked with Bob Lazar, Bob the physicist at Los Alamos. So here we are 30 years later, we're still arguing about the things, some things we just can't prove about Bob, but some things like the denial by Los Alamos, which is important. I can explain why, but did he ever work there? Well, he did work there. He was a physicist. I have a physicist who was in security briefings that went on the record telling, knowing Bob Lazar's name is Dr. Robert Krangle. And you can hear that interview on my website. So my point is this, you've got an institution Everything with Lazar is weird, right? Like everything. So you've got you've got this institution where he worked up for a long time. I have footage of him in my documentary going around Los Alamos at the Particle Accelerator, the Maison facility. You don't just get access to this place. So you've already got one institution lying that he was never a part of it, right? Now, can they erase all of his school records and can the government do I, I you know, I doubt it. I don't know. Uh I I don't understand that part of the story, but I don't know that it's the most critical part. So my answer to you is, I don't know if the government can erase everything. That just doesn't seem reasonable to me, okay? But we can prove that Bob Lazar worked at Los Alamos as a physicist. That has been proved every way from Sunday. If he worked at Los Alamos as a physicist, to get that job, he had to have some credentials. He had to, even if he didn't. I mean, I, you know, that's the thing. Is it plausible that being a physicist at Los Alamos, that he could get picked up just like he said he did? Could he get picked up by, you know, Nellis, which is Area 51 S4, to work on these projects because he's an out-of-the-box thinker? Yeah, he could. And in fact, he knew things about the base at that time, which he, he couldn't have known unless he was there. Right. 
And uh, we're going to get into a bit of that in a few. Uh, um, Genevieve? I want to um, just to check. Um, was it there that his name was found in, was it the um, telephone directory? Yeah, George Knapp found that. So they're telling George, you know, sorry, we never, we don't have any record of him. And Bob says, well, look, I know my lab phone number. He's like, I can tell you the number. There's people there who probably pick up that know me, right? And then they found this phone book and there's Bob Lazar, Robert Lazar in the phone book with the number that he had said. And then of course he took George Knapp to Los Alamos and uh, you know took him all around the Maison Particle you know facility and you know, I have footage of it in the film. You see these little B roll shots of that from the from you know nineteen eighty something you know so nineteen eighty nine or something like that. So yeah, so there's many things like that, Genevieve. That just he was there, he worked there. Let's move on to Area Fifty One. Is my attitude, you know, because we've proven it every way from Sunday now. Right, and just to add like an extra layer of uh, reassurance that that happened, I, I, if I remember correctly in the documentary, you also mentioned that he appears in the uh, Los Alamos newspaper. They, they mention him as working at Los Alamos, if, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, Bob Lazar, the physicist. So that's Mr. English. I, I've talked with him. He was the journalist from the Los Alamos Monitor. So what was really interesting was Bob Lazar was on the front cover of the Los Alamos Monitor as, you know, Robert Lazar, the physicist at Los Alamos. I mean, it's right there in black and white. So we've got that article. It's just really, you know, um, happenstance that he happened to be featured in that magazine because of his one of his jet cars. So I actually talked with the journalist and he says, yeah, I remember that well. Bob, yeah, the physicist, he worked there. So I did a story on him. And he said, interestingly enough, uh, Ed Tellers, the the godfather of the uh, atomic bomber or the hydrogen bomber, whatever it was, you know, Ed, Ed Teller, very famous physicist, he was there the next day giving a lecture. And, and how this journalist remembered that is because he also interviewed Ed Teller. Now, on the day Ed Teller came to give his lecture, there's Bob Lazar with his jet car on the front page of the Los Alamos Monitor, the, the actual local newspaper there. So that is how Bob was able to approach Ed Teller. And he says, hey, that's me you're reading about. And they had a long conversation. And that's how Ed Teller remembered him when Bob was looking for employment back in the scientific field. And this is how Bob's story goes, that Ed Teller was the one that says, you know, go to EG&G was the name of the subcontractor and they might have a job for you. I'll let them know that you're coming. So from Bob's perspective, if you just follow his story, yeah, it adds up. Yeah, absolutely. And I think lastly, to kind of just wrap up, uh, because I know, I know a lot of people have doubts, but let's just to end perhaps this section where we're discussing his credibility one of the things that also came up in the documentary, and it was a bit of a, a quirky situation that he got himself into that landed him in court. And in court, they asked him, I believe the line of questioning led to his education. And in court, which is under oath, you're, you're in front of a judge, he repeated the same story of, of his education. And I like what George Knapp said in the documentary that if he was lying, that was the time to come clean, correct? Yeah, he was looking at jail time. So let me explain that so people don't misunderstand it. You know, Bob Lazar is one of these guys. He lived a wild life. He easily somebody you could discredit if, if you wanted to. 
at one time he was affiliated with a brothel. There, there were legal brothels and illegal brothels, and he was affiliated with the elite, uh, illegal brothel, and you know set up a computer system and set up um, security cameras and that kind of thing for it. So George Knapp found out about it and actually told the cops. George Knapp said, "Hey, you know, I talked to Bob. He's he's getting out of it. You know, don't bust him. You know, George is like trying to like you know he's he's thinking, Bob is such an idiot. What is he doing? You know." Um, so he, but you know, what's so funny is, so at the time, the police and the, the local authorities, they were kind of, for lack of a better term, in bed with the madam, you know, they were, uh, using her for intelligence and that kind of thing. So the only person, nobody else even got a parking ticket, but Bob Lazar got hit with this like archaic, uh, you know, charge of pandering. So there he is defending himself and that's real jail time, you know, so he doesn't just tell his story in court. There's a whole discovery process. They have prosecutors. They look deeply into his past and yeah, he tells them the story of where he worked. Now they're trying to validate that and they can't. So at that time, Congressman Bill Bray, I mean, think about get a congressman to call up this super secret base that doesn't even exist officially called Area 51, right? <laughs> and he's trying to get information on employment of Bob Lazar so, so Bob can show them that he's, you know, that that's where he worked. And even the judge himself said, I have never run into anything like this. Obviously, it's hard to get information about Bob Lazar's employment because the base, they didn't say, we never heard of Bob Lazar or he's lying. They said to Congressman Bill Bray, you don't have a need to know, which is a weird thing to say if he never worked there. So that's, that's that whole you know, thing where people like to character assassinate him. Look, he openly admits he was involved with the brothel back then. Probably not a great choice, but uh, he was. And uh, what we learned from that is that even with a congressman, trying to connect with the base to find out if they can get records. He was said, you don't have a need to know. I found that really interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I never, well, at least I don't recall hearing about this hiccup he had uh, with the law. And it is very strange, as you point out, that he was kind of singled out a bit considering, you know, we all know the laws in Nevada and how people get down over there, if you will. Now, Let's move on to Area 51, because obviously this is the meat and potatoes of the story. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, in anybody in the chat room, wherever, uh, I believe the first time we heard of Area 51 was a photograph by a, a Soviet spy, uh, either satellite or a plane in like the 50s. And one of the things that was very strange about this was just this huge runway. It was just uh, ridiculous. And I remember the first time I saw that thing, it really blew my mind. And obviously then hearing about Bob Lazar's story, and I will say this even, or think around 2009, I'll say 2010, 2011, when Google Earth was, you know, kind of a little bit more popular. One of the first things I did was type Area 51. And on Google Earth, they even had the S4 part of it uh, labeled. You know, so it's crazy how it's become common knowledge. But back when Bob came out, this thing, you know, it was still a very obscure uh, subject to talk about. Yeah, there was there was no. So 
Look, it went by a number of different names, uh, The Box, Watertown, all sorts of stuff. So the only way you'd know about Area 51 is, you know, if you lived in Nevada, there were always rumors and whispers about this secret base because they'd always fly, you know, or drive from Las Vegas. But as far as popular culture, no. I mean, look, Obama was the first president to ever say Area 51, to actually call it that. It it took a long time for it to, to be acknowledged. It was not in popular culture. Uh, you know, although, you know, there are people obviously that were working there. And if you live in Nevada, you kind of know about it, but it, for it to become so famous and so popular, yeah, that was because of Bob Lazar. Now site four, look, he was the, it was never in any books. It was never written about any publications. No one had ever heard about it. That is fact. Site four was never acknowledged in 1989, right after Bob came forward as George Knapp was putting him through the ringer, getting people who worked at Area 51 to sit down with him and grill him. What do you see when you get off the flight? You know, what what color are the buildings? What's directly to your left? He passed all those tests. Everybody that that George Knapp, four people that George Knapp brought forward who he knew worked there as a journalist, right? In secret, sat him down and was like, tell me if this guy's lying. All of them believed that Bob Lazar had landed and had been there. Now, Bob Lazar worked south of Area 51 at that Papoose dry lake bed at a place he called Site 4. Now, George Knapp knew the head of public relations for the base back in 1989. It was a different era. So George called them up and said, do you have a Site 4? And they said, yeah, we, we actually have multiple Site 4s. Are there secret projects being done there? Yes. Can you tell me anything more about it? No. So it was admitted that Site 4 was an actual place back then, but Bob was the first one to talk about it. Now, I also have personal confirmation in a multitude of ways about Site 4, but that was Bob. Bob brought it forward first. That's how we know about it. Now, another thing that I found really interesting back in the day, and uh, maybe you watched this show as well, because we were kind of contemporaries, uh, I can tell. One of my favorite shows would follow the X-Files uh, every Friday night on the Fox lineup. And it was a show called Sightings, hosted by Tim White. And that's where I really got familiar with Bob Lazar. And I remember one of the stories that they did on Bob was that he would take out people to this little lookout point on Wednesday nights, and they could see this strange light maneuvering in the sky in the wee hours of the morning and I I remember thinking that was like quite fascinating and I remember a few months later maybe the next year there was like an update to the story that apparently the uh, whoever you know runs that base they extended the perimeter to encompass that hill so people couldn't get a view into this and the thing is how could he know that these tests were happening on this night at this time if he wasn't there, right? This is one of those things where you got to say, how did he know? So let me be very specific about this because people get part of the story and you're going to be amazed. It's actually much more than that. So at the time when Bob Lazar stopped getting calls to come out and work on these extraterrestrial spacecraft, right? On these on this gravity wave propulsion system that used element 115 as the fuel source. When he stopped getting calls, the reason he stopped getting calls, because he authorized the, the base and the people he was working for to monitor his phone lines. That was part of the protocol as he's going through these security clearances to, to get what he needed. 
They found out because he couldn't even tell his wife at the time. Bob couldn't, you know, what he was doing other than he's working at a, you know, out at the base or something like that. They found out she was having an affair, and so they basically saw Bob Lazar as a security risk. Part of the thing about getting security clearance is you have to have a stable home life. He certainly didn't have a stable home life at that point. He, you know, so in a kind of maybe an, an attempt to prove to his friends, he says it's one thing to tell your friends you're working on alien spacecraft, right? But to show them is another thing. So he, on three Wednesdays in a row, took different groups of people to this vantage point, this location, not just over Area 51, 17 miles south of Area 51 at a place called Papoose Lake. So by the way, nobody really knows about Area 51. Now we're talking about a tiny little area south of Groom Lake, south of Area 51. And he says, Wednesday night, 8.30, I know the flight schedule, the craft that I was working on is going to pop up. And sure enough, in each of these times, a craft comes up. They actually got it on video camera, but it's like 1980s video camera. So it's like not great footage because right. it's all black. and like. But the people that were there, I've talked to almost all of them. They're not all friends anymore and they don't talk anymore, some of them. But the one thing they do all agree on is when they went out with Bob, right when he said, right where he said, which is this really remote place, an object, a craft that looked exactly like a flying saucer came up and made maneuvers like they had never seen before. How did he know? How did he know that something like that was going to be flying? That that really boggles the mind. It really does. And one of the things that also threw me for a loop watching the documentary and watching Bob explain this process he was involved with uh, back engineering a uh, uh, seemingly alien craft. It's funny the the ufology circles and and just you know the 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 scene it has become. And I don't mean that necessarily in a bad way. I feel like we become a little bit arrogant as far as we think we have it figure it out to a degree how these things work and what they do. Where are they from? You can ask different people. You get different answers. However, one of the things that I found really interesting was when Bob was describing how, how the craft flies. And we can get into the, the propulsion system in a bit, but the one characteristic that I did not expect to hear about the way these craft fly is that apparently they fly belly first, the, the underside of the craft, you know, and we see movies, we hear uh, or we watch even like videos of people that have captured strange things. And we are kind of convinced that UFOs fly, you know, like saucers <laughs> skipping through water, as most people describe them. It was interesting to hear the way Bob described it. And if you could kind of go into that a little bit, because that, that was really fascinating. Sure. So that's partially correct. So let me give you the details on it, which is that there were two power modes that Bob Lazar witnessed in, in how the, the gravity wave amplifiers, I guess for lack of a better word, propelled the craft. So there, there was a, a configuration in the low power mode where it can lift off the ground and it can kind of lift up using the Earth's gravity and pushing away from it. That's where one of the gravity wave amplifiers is facing down. So it kind of looks like if you've ever you know kind of talked to people who've seen these things, sometimes they say it looks like it's floating on water that kind of thing. 
that's when the belly's facing down and these craft lift up and then kind of maneuver in little ways. But in the high power mode, that's when uh, the, the craft will turn its belly towards wherever it needs to go in, in time space, essentially. And all three gravity wave amplifiers will then focus in on a single point and it, it snaps into place. I mean, that's the nature of this distortion effect with gravity, if, if we believe you know, what Bob Lazar is saying. So there's two modes of travel. One with a single gravity wave amplifier facing straight down, and that's when you're within the proximity of another massive gravitational body like the Earth. And then the other is for more of, I guess you'd say, like interstellar travel. And that's when it turns its belly towards uh, the, the destination it's going to. The whole craft is enveloped, if everything is as advertised, it's enveloped with a gravity field. So the occupant inside never experiences a differential between uh, you know, their you know, inertia or momentum or anything like that. It's truly fascinating. Something that was said to me by a, a designer, an aerospace designer, he says, I don't know, this is recent. You know, he says, I don't know about Bob's claims. I, I don't have any knowledge for or against he says, but when I heard Bob explain how the gravity wave amplification system works and how the entire craft is used in that system, as an aerospace designer, I have to say it is the most genius explanation that I have ever heard of, of, of a spacecraft and, and, and how it works. So he's not saying for or against if he believes Bob's story. He's just saying he's got to be a freaking genius to be able to figure out, you know, a story like how this works, you know, unless he's just telling the truth, just like how he was told they operate. And I believe we got a question in the chat. Yeah. Oh, I want to make a quick point, um, you know, regarding the um, kind of belly first uh, way of maneuvering. You know, it reminds me of the various pieces of evidence that you see floating around in documentaries and on the internet where a kind of that cigar-shaped um, flying saucer or, you know, UFO is depicted. And I think that's much more common. Right. So the, the, the misconception about these vehicles that, you know, the, the military, the, the defense intelligence agency calls them AAVs, anomalous aerial vehicles. When they're doing public relations, it's AATs, anomalous aerial threats. Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, went on Jimmy Kimmel and said, oh no, it's not UFOs anymore. It's UAPs. So <laughs> there's all these different acronyms. Basically what they're all saying are vehicles of unknown origin with capabilities far beyond our technology. That's what ATIP, Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, that was outed through the New York Times in December of 2017, that program was studying these advanced vehicles and trying to understand how they operate. Because whoever understands that, they have a warfare advantage. So the misnomer is that craft of unknown origin, let's call them UFOs for now, that they're either cigar-shaped or they're saucer-shaped. In fact, they're all sorts of shapes. They're, they're, the design apparently is, is not uniform for these. People are seeing for thousands of years since the beginning of recorded human history, all sorts of vehicles that seem to traverse time and space in a way that traditional propulsion as we know it now can never do. And that is something we can't get around. The phenomenon is real. Our own government has told you now that it is real. And it is up to us to try to understand and pick through 
the junk information out there and to come to a greater understanding of the universe and also our place within that universe. And I think that's what you know we get from this. When people say, I believe in UFOs, well, I hate that. Belief has nothing to do with it. That, that perspective is challenged by an informational reality. We have the information. It is there. To say that we believe something, you know, that's, you know, that, that is an incorrect way to look at this uh, phenomenon. Not that you said that, I'm just, that's often what people say is, do you believe in UFOs? It's either true or it's not true. And the social consensus needs to catch up because we have the information now. It has been given to us. It is there. This stuff is real. And this is uh, a question um, that we've got in the chat um, on Live Me, and username Antichrist is asking. You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh oh, uh oh. Okay, here we go. <laughs> He's asking, you know, if if Lazar really has all this information and it's true, then why isn't he dead? <laughs> Essentially. Well, well, yeah, I'll let Jeremy answer. Actually, yeah, go ahead, Jeremy. <laughs> Right. So th that's kind of like, okay, first of all, I, I don't you know, is it true? Is it not true? So you have to decide that. If Bob really saw this stuff, I mean, what information does he have? I mean, all he has is he told you, you know, what it is that he was working on. Why isn't he dead? I mean, he said it all. If they wanted to kill him, they would have killed him, you know, immediately. I think it's either that there were factions that wanted this information out and he was used as a patsy to get this information out to the public or it's exactly you know as advertised and he was under threat but made the decision to come forward to come public say it all at one time on the news with George Knapp and then what else can they be afraid of he's already said the story if they kill him now maybe they validate his story if they respond to him in any way they validate his story so maybe he said it all, got it out there, and then the best thing for everybody else to do is just look the other direction because it's too crazy to believe anyway. Most people are not going to believe it. And like he himself said, um, you know, he went public with this information for insurance's sake, life insurance, yeah. essentially. Yeah, yeah, he, he did. I mean, whether your audience believes that or not, I know Bob, and I know everybody involved, and it was real. He was terrified. They were being followed. Their phones were tapped. George Knapp's phone was tapped. They were visited at the news station by um, naval intelligence. This stuff is real. Other sources came forward to confirm Bob's story. Six people came forward to George Knapp through his phone line at the news station. And every single one of them was visited and threatened with their life, not to talk to George Knapp. And to this day, they won't do that. So yeah, I mean, that's an indicator that somebody doesn't want this story out and, and somebody believes Bob in the government. Right. And you know what? We're going to take our top of the hour break a little earlier just because our next set of questions, I don't want to interrupt them uh, <laughs> by taking a break because we're going to get into some more heavy stuff here. Uh, including your documentary kicks off with um, Bob Lazar getting raided by the FBI. and Again, again, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you can't argue that, well, why is he still alive? I mean, we're, we're glad that he's fine and he's okay. But, you know, that doesn't mean that he's not dealing with some very, very serious issues. 
Well, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the Antichrist, uh, as he called himself, uh, asked a good question, right? right. Uh, but, you know, I think the, the answer to that is, well, if you look at his story and you consider it for a minute, you can understand that he came forward and said everything to save his own skin. And maybe it, it maybe it worked. Right, right. And uh, and just before we go to break, one of the, the cool things here uh, in the documentary that I found, and I really hope you frame this or you put it somewhere really cool, was the sketch that Bob Lazar did of the sports model, as he referred to, the, the craft that he worked on. And I want to to get into that craft when we come back from the break. But one of the interesting thing is when, you know, for the folks out there, they have an iPhone, is that the UFO emoji looks strikingly similar to the Bob Lazar sketch. And it just goes to show how much influence his account has had in our culture in general. I was going to say popular culture, but geez, I mean, I've seen people that don't even believe in UFOs use the UFO emoji. Yeah, they, that's a, that's actually a great point. I mean, look, you've got things like, you know, the X-Files where in the newer version, they said the craft operates off of a fuel source called Element 115. That's directly from Bob Lazar. Right. So yeah, it's popular culture, but also just general culture. Everybody knows what, if, if you ask anybody on the street in any country, independent of age, you ask them to draw a flying saucer, they're going to be able to draw a flying saucer. Everybody knows what we're talking about. Right. Jeremy, if you'd be so kind to just hang on the line, we're just going to take a, a quick break. Oh, hang on, Jer um, uh, Genevieve. Well, uh, there are a few people who are, will still be in the chat and maybe during that time they'll be able to look up um, other information about you and the documentary. So could you briefly tell us your um, various social media handles and where they can find out more about you and the documentary? Sure. Thanks, Genevieve. So I'm very easy to find, probably too easy to find. My name is Jeremy Corbell and every social media handle is just my name. My website is called extraordinarybeliefs.com and that'll have all my movies that I've done. But this new one is called Bob Bazaar Area 51 and Flying Saucers. It's on iTunes, Amazon, uh, Vimeo, and you can just kind of take a look at the trailers or something like that. Yeah. And I you know, I love sincere questions because this is, to me, one of the most interesting topics I've ever covered. Absolutely. Jeremy, just hang on the line for us, and we're going to be back in just a few minutes to uh, talk some more about this uh, incredible story that you managed to, uh, to, to put on film. Is that cool? Great. Of course. Thanks, guys. So we're going to, like I said, take a break. Uh, I'm going to play a couple of songs here. You know... Every time we get into certain topics, there is a song that I just find quite apropos. So we're going to go out with a little uh, Leonard Cohen with a song that's one of my favorites. Never mind. West of the Rockies is coming right back in just a few minutes. Genevieve is here. Jeremy's here. I'm here. And you guys on uh, like me and tune in. And if you're catching the podcasted version of this show, stick around. We're going to be right back. West of the Rockies. Open, open, your, 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 mind, mind, mind. And we're back to the second hour of uh, West of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Uh, I hope everybody's having a great time. 
As always, I'm Engineer Frank on Twitter, West of the Rockies on Facebook. Don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at W-O-T-R and then the word radio. That's the website as well, WOTRradio.com. And the YouTube channel, you type in that on YouTube or just put YouTube.com forward slash WOTRradio and you're there. Uh, click the bell to subscribe, all the little buttons they got on there to uh, stay up to date with everything that we're doing. As always, I'm joined by Genevieve, Genevieve Uway <laughs> on Twitter. Uh, if you don't know how to spell that, I don't blame you. I have a tough time myself. So, uh, but you can find her on our website and you can catch her here doing her very own show. No out of flavors, music, fun facts, jokes, and a whole lot more on the independent.fm. Real quick, I just want to send a quick shout out. To uh, some people in the chat, uh, Enox and Tomcat, thank you for the hellos. Uh, they got relayed to me, and I, I blushed. I'm, I'm being <laughs> honest, so thank you for that. Um, big shout out as well to Mateo, Arturi Sparrow, Castiel, I hope I'm saying that right, Spoons, J-Dub, and LS Alice. Oh, and, and one more. The and ruler. the ruler. The ruler. There's no one cooler than the ruler. I never <laughs> met that person, but I'm sure they're really nice. And a little bit back announcing here, uh, we just heard some Soundgarden pretty news from their album Down on the Upside, probably one of my all-time favorite albums. And uh, it was it was really cool to see that um, he got a Grammy, Chris Cornell got a Grammy, uh, and uh, rest in peace. Man, I remember when uh, I got the little Twitter notification that he passed away and Boy, the, uh, I'm not exaggerating. I, I was holding back some tears, man. Soundgarden was there for me in some tough times. Uh, so, yeah, rest in peace, Chris. And uh, before that, we uh, heard some Leonard Cohen, uh, Song Nevermind. I first heard that track. Uh, I've always liked Leonard Cohen, but I first heard that track as the uh, intro to uh, the first uh, season of True Detective, which I think was far superior than the others, I, if I may say so myself. I'm no... TV yeah, critic, I, think, but, I think that's what most people say. Right, still. that's the general consensus, it seems. Let me uh, bring back our guest, uh, Jeremy Corbell, so that he can tell us one more time, if you'd be so kind, where can people find him on social media and where can people watch this amazing documentary on Bob Lazar? Jeremy, can you tell us that info? Sure. So I, I have a YouTube that gives a lot of kind of fresh videos. It's YouTube slash Jeremy Corbell. All of my social media is just my la my first and last name, Jeremy Corbell. My website is extraordinarybeliefs.com. And you can see all my films on uh, iTunes. But this one we're talking about, Bob Lazar, Area 51, and Flying Saucers, you can see on also Amazon, on Vimeo. One of my films is on Netflix. My, one of my first films called Patient 17 about alleged alien implant removal surgeries. Really wild topic. But yeah, you can find, it's really easy to find all my films and to watch it however you want. By the way, you mentioned True Detective season one being the best. I agree with you. My <laughs> friend, he was a jujitsu student of mine. His name is Kerry. He's the director and I'm really proud of him. I mean, he, he did an amazing job with that first True Detective. Very inspiring as a filmmaker. It's really cool to see one of my jujitsu students doing something so cool. So, so I just want to say that. I guess you, you can say that he kicks ass. <laughs> oh, big time, big time. <laughs> um, I'm here all week, folks. Anyway, Jeremy, <laughs> speaking, I mean, one of the things that, you know, when I started looking into your work, uh, one of the things I noticed is that you tackle some of the most 
perplexing topics out there. You mentioned possible alien implants. But one of the ones that I found really interesting when I, when I watched it was your documentary on the Skinwalker Ranch. And I had read George Knapp's book on it, which up to the time your documentary came out was the most comprehensive uh, source of information on, on this mysterious ranch. But you managed to get in there and get some footage and stuff. Can you tell us really briefly about that? Because it, it's another fascinating thing. And I know that's a whole other show <laughs> that we could do on that. But just briefly tell us a little bit about what it was like filming that. Is it really, is there something really going on there? Like what's up with uh, Skinwalker? Yeah, well, the Defense Intelligence Agency, which is the intelligence agency for the Pentagon, absolutely believes something's going on at Skinwalker Ranch because they funded a $22 million study with taxpayer money, which focused a lot on the ranch and the things that have been observed there. And it's not just UFOs. It's also creatures. It, you know, there's distortions of time space. It is a really bizarre story. So yeah, I was able, because of George Knapp and the work that he had done for two decades, being the only journalist allowed during active investigations by both Robert Bigelow, who's a billionaire, who's uh, known for, I guess, uh, inflatables, putting them on the International Space Station. You know, he was, George was allowed to document with film, a lot of the investigations, what was going on, but he was never allowed to release that footage. So I pestered George over and over, come on, man, we got to get this out to the world. And there was never a, an opening, but then the ranch was sold to another individual. And that opportunity, that moment really opened the door to go back into George Knapp's archives, to pull out that footage. We were authorized to do so able to tell that story through the visual medium of film because as you said before was there was just a book they weren't even allowed to put a single photograph in that book so my film was the first time ever that people got to see footage from actual investigations at Skinwalker Ranch which is a, a ranch up in Utah it's an area of land in, in northeastern Utah that is known for paranormal for for better you know for lack of a better term from ufos as i said to creatures to balls of light to time space distortions all sorts of weird stuff i mean look it stretches my own imagination but there were phd level scientists that worked for years trying to understand the phenomenon as they call it whatever that is this phenomenon that includes ufos and as i said Famously, the Defense Intelligence Agency was, you know, kind of, it was exposed. There was a program called ATIP, Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, and that was to reactionary style to, to study these, these Uf, UFOs. However, the, the, the mother program was called AWSAP, and that, that's the, the acronym. And AWSAP had a much bigger agenda than just UFOs. It was, you know, they, they studied wormholes and, as I said, like time-space distortions. Very strange. So on this ranch, all this stuff was occurring. Now, for the first time ever in my film, you get to see modern-day footage from the third major investigation that's going on right now. And you get to see the ranch. There's an interview with the new owner. Now, I had to shield his identity because he wanted to make sure that he keeps his identity private. Uh, 
because he didn't want to. He, he's a businessman, and he's he's known, and it would be better if if uh, you know he could keep these things separate. And I totally respect that. But yeah, in this film, you get to actually see on Skinwalker Ranch, and you get to see all this historic footage. It was so fun to make, and I've been to the ranch a number of times. And look, it's harder to get on the ranch. Uh, than it is Area 51. Less people have ever been at Skinwalker Ranch. So I felt really honored to be able to go there on multiple occasions, you know, spend nights there and, and really try to see for myself what this is all about. <laughs> and I, I did not have a paranormal experience. I did not see anything that I can definitively say is truly unexplained, but but many scientists, that, that you know, government scientists were there and, and did experience these things. And one of one of whom helped co-author the book with George Knapp of the same title, Hunt for this for the Skinwalker. And it's uh, his name is Dr. Colum Kelleher. And it's just uh, it's just astounding. It's astounding what has been documented and recorded on that ranch. However, we still don't know what is driving what they call the phenomenon. Wow. Yeah, no, it looks like that that will remain a mystery for a little longer, it seems. <laughs> I hope one day we get closer to the truth. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, I think we're going to dive back into the Bob Lazar story. And uh, Genevieve, I'll let you kick this one off. Well, going back to what we were talking about just before the break, though Bob Lazar is very fortunately still alive, I think we can safely say that he does not exactly lead a private, um, completely unmonitored life. Could you tell us a bit about what happened regarding the FBI raids? Sure. And it was a multi-agency raid. We still don't know. We know the FBI was involved in the recent raid, but there were other agencies. And we've been trying to get information on this because it was a very dramatic experience that, that I actually, for the first time in my life, got to kind of experience the the negative side of this. So I'm out there and I'm filming with Bob and we decide to have, I'll say like a, a private conversation. We, we left his house, went further out onto his property. And I actually was recording because I, I wanted to have, even encrypted, I wanted to have this part of the story documented. And he, he agreed. And so we kind of went out and we, we started filming. And I, this was never intended to be in the movie because I didn't know, we're, you know he was going to have an FBI raid in the middle of the movie. But this is never supposed to be part of the movie. It was just something we were recording and going to encrypt. And it's just you know kind of like an insurance. It's just something to keep so that somebody has it documented. And it, right before we kind of get into some of the kind of more sensitive parts, and, and look, I'll be straightforward with you. I, we went on Larry King, and, and Bob was straightforward. He told Larry King they were, he believes they were looking for the fuel for, for some Element 115, because famously back, you know, in the early 90s, Bob revealed or claimed that he got a piece of this fuel source, this stable form of Element 115 that he says he worked with, out of. The, the facility. Now he got it out of, he says he got it out of Los Alamos, not Area 51, because it was being machined in Los Alamos for use at Area 51. And they machined it and they told the machinists that it was an exotic armor, right? They wouldn't tell them exactly what it is, like an extraterrestrial <laughs> material, you know? Right. So that, that's the claim. So to understand maybe what we were talking about, you know, had to deal with, you know, some sensitive topics about Element 115. 
So I, I asked him at that moment, I said, do you have your cell phone on you? I felt like I was being paranoid and I was being ridiculous. And we both agreed, well, better safe than sorry, you know, take the phone. We don't, we want this to be a private conversation, not that nothing illegal, just a private conversation. So I ditched the phones, you know, a couple hundred meters away, came back, finished the interview. Again, it was never at, none of it was supposed to be in the movie. And then I left. And the moment I left, I mean, agency after agency, about 25 forensic agents descended upon his place of business in this tiny, sleepy little town in Michigan and went through his business and property, sectioning it off in meter cubes. And they mirrored his computer. They, they just, their excuse was they were looking for paperwork. Now, I know a lot of people that work in that field as a federal investigator, and they have all told me, if you're looking for paperwork, you call somebody. You send one person over there. This was over the top. Now, whatever, however you want to look at it, whatever you want to believe about it, I'm not asking you to believe anything. I'm just saying he was raided. It is my understanding that they repeated back to Bob the specific conversation that we had before we ditched the phones. So this is the first time in my life when I feel a private conversation was intercepted. And you know that, that's infuriating. It's something that's very abstract until you yourself experience it. And I felt bad for Bob. I mean, he's a good guy and he's, his life was turned literally upside down. They, I mean, they, they turned his place upside down. So that happened. And after that happened, I, I decided to touch upon that because it, it would be public record. So I decided to touch upon that in the film and let you hear from Bob's perspective what that raid was about and what happened to him. I wanted people to know during the filming what happened to him. So I put that in the film, let him describe that raid and put a little section showing that we were having this conversation and that that conversation was somehow related most likely to the raid. Now, this is not the first time Bob Lazar has been raided by agencies. This also happened to him in New Mexico. And it's always very strange. I mean, usually when you get a, a federal raid and you get a judge to sign off, you have probable cause and somebody's going to jail. I mean, they don't take these things lightly, right? Nothing. Right. Nothing with Bob. Jeez. So... You know, the, 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 the claim is simply there was a raid. If you look into it a little bit more, uh, I, I would say there's great evidence that they were looking for something. And specifically, it is my understanding that they were looking to see if his claim of having some Element 115 was valid. And let's talk about this Element 115 because, as you mentioned, he first put this out there in, in one of his interviews and, and when he first came out. And I remember in either 2015 or 2016 when it was confirmed that this element 115 was actually real. And I believe now it goes by the name of uh, Moscovium, named after, I, I believe, uh, Russia and Moscow, where they managed to synthesize this thing. However... One of the things that I found interesting is that he explains that this is the fuel that produces its own gravitational energy. And he describes how there is a certain method to process this element 115. And it involves, you know, turning it in, 
to a certain shape from a cylinder to like a cone and then you have to do certain things. I know I'm reaching, but it almost sounds like uh, some type of magic ritual that you got to do to this thing because otherwise it won't work. What can you tell me about Element 115 and the role that it plays into the propulsion system that Lazar uh, had to uh, take apart? So we, we have to kind of try to understand it with, with the information that, that we have. So the machining of it, I took more than like a ritual or something. I, I took it as, as that they're, they're machining it so that there's very specific surface areas that are exposed or connected and that kind of thing. I'm, I'm not a machinist, but I've had a number of machinists contact me after you know, I came forward with this film saying, oh, I think I can explain to you why, why they would machine the element this way. But l- let's back up a little bit because the people that are critical of the Lazar story, which is fine, they're often critical about incorrect information. So I want to make sure you have the, the correct information. Bob Lazar was not the first person to ever talk about element 115. You know, it was always theorized that on the periodic chart that there are these super heavy elements, but that they weren't fabricated here and that it would, you know, we, we figured one day we'd be able to, you know, through slamming neutrons, you know, basically create some of these super heavy elements. And and we we have been, we have been able to. So element 115, four atoms of it was fabricated. And again, this is like a crapshoot. I'm not sure how to exactly explain it, but it's like, you know, smashing, you know, hitting golf balls into cars and hoping that, you know, it, you know, it lands in the right way. And, you know, you're in these particle accelerators. It's not an exact science anymore. You can't just like, I'm going to make element 115. There's an element of chance to it. Now, the element 115, the four atoms that were created in our particle accelerators, which, you know, it, it is worthy to say that Bob always said we're gonna be able to fabricate at some point element 115 in an unstable way, and he was right. We were able to. So the, the element 115 that was created in laboratories, it has a half-life of 220 milliseconds. So it's before you can even register it, it's basically gone. This is a far cry from what he said he was working on, which is a stable, he had a piece of 223 grams of this stuff, right? So a substantial amount. And in fact, he was told our government or this or whoever he was working for had 500 pounds of it, which is ridiculous. I mean, that's a crazy statement. Like, how could we get that? We can't fabricate that. Even with extensive new technologies, you know, 10,000 years in advance, you probably can't make this stuff. But here's the deal. He said that there was a stable form. Now, Now, if you look at different elements like gold, right? Gold has a lot of different versions. I think there's 40 different versions. I Google it. I'm not sure if this is correct, but I think there's 40 different versions of it, all of which except one are unstable. So the gold we know has the isotopes, the neutrons to make the gold we know stable, like you can hold it in your hand. It has always been theorized that in these super heavy elements, like element 115, that you cannot rule out a stable form. We just haven't found it yet. So Bob Lazar said somehow they had a stable form of this element 115. Now, now why is that important? Well, first of all, Bob thinks it was brought here as, as cargo. He, he thinks it was naturally occurring and harvested. If he was told everything that was correct by an extraterrestrial civilization, and that's the fuel source. And somehow we have some of it. He doesn't know how we got it, but we have some of it. Now, how it works in in the craft, in the machine, is 
this Element 115, when machined in this very specific way, which is the first time you ever hear about it, how it was machined in my film, there's a lot of things that are brand new in my film. If people don't know that, they haven't been looking close enough. So the 115 is machined, and the way it was described to Bob, so his best understanding, is that the, this stable form with the, with the right isotopic combination to be stable, this element 115, that it almost produces more gravity, like the gravity extends out beyond the mass itself, so they could then harvest the, the wave, because yes, gravity is a wave. We have now found that out. That was also proven after Bob Lazar said gravity was a wave. That is now scientific fact. So this gravity wave was then harvested from the element 115 and then through uh, waveguides, you know, made by extraterrestrials, basically could extend this gravity wave and produce this effect Right, this gravitational effect. So that's how element 115 ties into the spaceship, the spacecraft, right? That Bob Lazar says he worked on. It's an incredible story, far beyond the technology we have now. But the biggest criticism people say is, well, element 115 is not stable, so Bob Lazar is lying. Well, hold up. It, it is theorized that there is a stable version. We cannot discount it. Any super heavy element physicist that you talk with knows this. And anybody that says otherwise is incorrect or they're trying to dissuade you from, from understanding this because that I've done a lot of research on this now. I've talked to like nine different people who are in this field and they all tell me you, you cannot discount a stable form of element 115. Now, that doesn't mean I can prove Bob Lazar's statements. It's just saying we can't discount it. Did, did that answer your question kind of? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It's just one of the key parts of the Bob Lazar story. Yeah, it's this element 115. So I really appreciate you taking the time to really walk us through it because I've seen so many people try to invalidate Bob's story based on, well, the little that we know or we knew at the time about element 115. So I think that was a great explanation you gave us there. Now, one of the other things that was really interesting about the Bob Lazar story was how he describes the inside of the craft. One of the things that stood out to me when he was uh, talking about it was when he starts describing the height of the chairs inside the, the UFO, uh, which were not to the proportions of a, a normal size adult human, if you will. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Really interestingly enough, so there's Bob. He's one of the most skeptical people you'll ever meet. I mean, that's what's interesting about him. If he can't see it, touch it, and you know, with his own hands, he doesn't take it on face value. So they told him, "You're going to be working on this, you know, machine, and it's really cool, basically." And uh, you know, he walks by the first time he ever saw it. He walks by the, the this disc, this flying saucer, and he runs his hand along it, and he thinks to himself look at this. Everybody who thought about you know, UFOs from other worlds, he's like, what idiots? They're ours. In, in, in his mind, he's like, we have the flying saucers. It was a natural thought. He saw it. Right. But it was when he got into the laboratory and he started to kind of be shown a little bit more about the craft and how it worked that he realized, we, this is not our technology. They're asking me to reverse engineer it. And it started to dawn on him that this craft, that the system, that this technology was not from here. And in fact, there's a physics 
a known physics that, that, that they were using in these facilities, to understanding that is being held back from humanity. But, but even that didn't prove it to him. It was that moment you asked about when he walked into a craft. He, 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 he got on one occasion, he was allowed to go into the craft to look down in the lower levels and look at the way that the gravity amplifiers were situated in, in the spaceship. And he goes in, and the moment he steps in, I said, well, how did that feel? And he said, ominous. You felt like you shouldn't be in there. Everything is the same pewter gray. There's not a single edge, like a sharp corner anywhere. And he says, and the biggest thing was, I look at the seats and they were like half human size. You wouldn't build something like that. It was like claustrophobic for a full grown human. And, and that really dawned on him, holy cow, you know, this was not made for us to operate. This was made for smaller beings to operate. And that was this real powerful moment that he remembers vividly. And it dawned on him what he was actually working on. It became real. You know, there's been a lot of speculation as far as where did we get this technology. I know we would be speculating here, but uh, do you have any thoughts? I mean, some people have said that these are saucers from the Roswell crash. Uh, these were captured. These were given to us in the uh, alien treaty with Eisenhower. I'm sure you're familiar with all of these uh, possibilities. Uh, do you lean on any of these? Yeah, I'm the worst at, at speculating. I'm a documentary filmmaker. I, I document what other people think. I, I have no idea. I can't even begin to provide any evidence or proof or even ideas on all of those things you just said could be. But I will tell you one thing, and this is new. This is something that for the first time ever, I, I, I really pressed Bob and got him to kind of speculate And he says, look, I don't know. He goes, I, I, was, I read briefings. He read a whole bunch of wild briefings that said these were craft from the Zeta Reticuli star system, you know, that these, these grays, they, they, they actually called them the kids. That was the, the term for the aliens. Uh, you know, no one ever said aliens at the base. They always called them the kids. And he thought that was hilarious. But what he said for the first time speculating, he said to me, I got the impression. He's like, I, I can't tell you exactly how or why, just because it, you know, there's no one specific thing. But he was led to believe that these nine extraterrestrial vehicles, these nine craft that he saw, although he only worked on one and touched one, that they were from some sort of archaeological situation, some sort of archaeological dig, like like they had, like we had had them for a really long time and had made very little progress on understanding how they operate. Wow, you just literally <laughs> blew my mind with that. Holy cow, that is something else. Just the thought that these could be, I mean, you know, one would assume, right, that when he was working on them, they were probably, you know, maybe a few decades old, but the possibility that these could be even older than that and that technologically advanced Boy, uh, you uh, just gave me a lot to think about tonight. <laughs> oh, me, me too. That that blew my mind. I had never even dawned on me, and I, you know, I'm not sure exactly what it was that was said to him or how it was conveyed, but he just got the impression that they had been working on these for a long time and that they hadn't made a lot of progress and that these were maybe even ancient. 
Unbelievable. Incredible stuff. Incredible stuff. Let's talk about this uh, hand scanner, which was also a really cool thing that you found. And this is something that he had referenced, but there was no way to corroborate. There was no Google back then or anything like that to try and find a picture of this thing. But you found one. And I remember watching how the look on his face when you handed him this, this photograph. And it was the look you give something you haven't seen in a very long time that you were very familiar with. It's the equivalent of when I find like maybe like a childhood toy in, in all my junk. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot about this thing. Tell you tell us a little bit about what's the story behind this uh, hand scanner and why was it such a critical piece in the puzzle of uh, Bob Lazar? Yeah, that was a really exciting moment. And you see it exactly like I experienced it. You know, what I try to do in my documentaries and why I'm often in my documentaries is because I want you to kind of follow me on my journey of discovery. So this was one of those things that, that we could never have had access to 30 years ago when the story first broke. In fact, Bob has been mocked and laughed at, you know, for saying this. But he always said that one of the kind of prototype biometric kind of access devices that were used at S4, he, he said it was it was a like a hand scanner that you would put your hand on this uh, kind of like a plate, and it had these uh, little spikes that were sticking up, the rods that were sticking up. And that this bright light would come down from the top and that it would measure the bones in your hand and that everybody's got kind of unique structure to their bones. And that was one of the ways that you would access and get your security card out. I mean, it just sounds like science fiction. He even would laugh when, when he would talk about it because it sounds so ridiculous back, especially back in 1989. But you know, this was something he said and everybody said, oh, that's crazy. And, you know, Bob always got laughed at about it. Like, what are you talking about? That sounds like science fiction. Well, because of the lens of 30 years, information is, is coming out. So it turns out a friend of mine was kind of tipped off and given some photographs that showed these hand scanners that did exactly what Bob Lazar said they did and looked exactly like Bob Lazar described them and that these were used at Area 52, which is the Tonopah test range in the stealth programs. So not everybody used them, the mechanics and this sort of thing, but actually there were people that used this for identification. So I, I got the images and I thought, well, Bob's always talked about them. Let's see what he says. And I, I told him that I had some photos and in the movie, you see me show it to him. And yeah, he's like a kid in a candy store. He feels vindicated. It's it's why he's like, that's, a, that's it. I never thought I'd see one of those again. I mean, it was really for him, this exciting moment, this tiny little vindication because, you know, knowing that these were used at the Nellis base, you know, knowing that they were used on the complex. They, they weren't that good, by the way. They discontinued them uh, shortly after 1989. They were really like actually bad biometric sensors, but they were used in these ultra top secret programs like the stealth program for certain individuals. So it then goes to reason, how did he know about this technology? Now, what's funny is if you go and you watch uh, like Close Encounters, you know how sometimes the military, they'll consult for a film. There's this glimpse where you see a guy walk through a door and he puts his hand under something and a light goes off. That was it. It's called the identity mat. So it was already kind of hidden like an Easter egg 
in popular culture. But in no way does that mean that Bob knew that it was being used, you know, at the base without no, I mean, how would somebody know that unless they were there? Um, people argue, well, somebody told him, okay, sure. Somebody told him, but you could say that about Bob's whole story for him. It was this great moment this little vindication. And you're right. When you see Bob react to this, that was a genuine reaction. So he knew. And that's the first time you hear about this. First time you see the photos is in my film. There's a lot of firsts. People will watch it and they're thinking they're not seeing anything new. Are you kidding me? How Element 115 was machined? The hand scanner. I found the guy after 30 years and got on the phone with him that did the security clearance for Bob Lazar. Nobody knew that before. Bob always said there was a guy named Mike Thigpen. No, you know, George Knapp you know, was able to track the guy down, but was never able to get him on the phone. I talked to him. I talked to him at length on multiple occasions. Um, so there's all these new things in the film, and the hand scanner was a really cool one. Yeah, I think people need to remember that these seemingly small tidbits of validation have a huge impact on the story as a whole. Yeah, Genevieve. I mean, it's like, it's like death by a thousand cuts. Like you can say, I don't believe Bob. Okay, that's fine. You don't need to believe him. He doesn't even want you to believe him. Really, it's easier for his life if you don't believe him. But he feels that he has a duty to tell the story right and to tell it straight and for you to use your mind and decide for yourself. But these little things that occur, you cannot dismiss them. You can try to tear apart the Lazar story about his education. You can try to tear apart his character. You can just say it's too fanciful and I don't want to believe it. But you can't deny these little tiny things that start adding up. Obviously, Bob's life has been uh, quite the roller coaster since he came out 30 years ago talking about this stuff. Now that your documentary is out, how is uh, Bob Lazar doing it? Uh, I would imagine he's still under surveillance. He still has to take certain precautions or does he lead his life uh, freely and, and try not to worry about those things? Totally freely. I mean, you know, it's so, it's like this paradox. We had, we, we even joked about it that nobody's going to be listening. Nobody cares what he said 30 years ago. We thought we were past that. It really shocked us when this, you know, raid happened on his business, which again, there, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing happened, you know, he's not charged with anything, right? you know, nothing happened. So he lives a very fun life in the sense that he's got his business is called United Nuclear. Um, UnitedNuclear.com is the website. It's got all these, I mean, it's like Willy Wonka of science. It's the coolest website. You get to, you just check it out. It's very, very cool. So on a daily basis, he gets to do what he loves and he gets to work with, you know, in, in science and technology and gets cool contracts and has this kind of online store for all this mad scientist stuff. You know, he's got a great a wife and a great life. He's got a great home. He's got all these animals and horses. And, you know, he just has a great life. He he was worried and I was worried that by stirring this all back up and righting the, the wrongs and straightening out the record, that he would be under scrutiny in ways that were not good for his well-being. But to to the to this moment that that hasn't happened. People have responded with positivity. Whether you believe his story or not, People are fascinated by his story. It has gone like a whirlwind around the world. I mean, Fox News picked it up. Uh, we went on Larry King. There, you know, even the New York Times did a, a little blurb about it. You know, the movie has recaptured the imagination of the public 
and and everybody looking at this, whether they believe him or not, it, they, it's a fascinating story about a fascinating person. But yeah, he lives a very calm, relatively normal life and just likes to spend time with friends and family in, in a small circle, you know? I'm happy to hear that he has managed to retain some kind of a normal lifestyle because uh, I can't imagine what it's like knowing in the back of your head that you're constantly watched so well, i think i think they were surveilling because i think we were rehashing the story we were bringing it up again we were specifically talking about element 115 i, I don't think it's like this constant thing where he is being looked at he told his story 30 years ago we're retelling it now with some new information and some new evidence but yeah i don't think there's any element of that cloak and dagger and spies neither of us feel that way i've only been helped people call me every day you know trying to tell me parts to the story that i don't no, I've never had anybody call me and say, don't do this movie or anything negative like that. It's, it's all been positive. So yeah, I'm, I'm happy to say everything is, is, is pretty good. Now, the other thing that's interesting is, you know, he does not like public appearances. I mean, people have been really mean to him. You know, they've, they've tried to, they've said horrible things about him that, that aren't true. Man, if people did that, I wouldn't want to be in public settings talking about UFOs either. He's never gone on UFO circus, never done anything like that. But in my in the world premiere of the film, which was in Los Angeles, there's over 1,600 people completely filled out the theater, and I brought him on stage to do a, a Q&A. And, you know, he doesn't like this stuff. He's doing it because I begged him to do it, right? Mm-hmm. He went on Larry King because I begged him to do it. I was like, I want people to know about my movie, Bob, please. But <laughs> he actually had, a, I think he had a pretty good time. I mean, you know, he got people asked questions through Twitter and we got to answer some of them. So I've, I've kind of, I pushed him a little bit. And I got him. He's going to do another Q&A with me live uh, in Oregon after we screen the film. So he's not going on lecture circuits. He's not going to talk about it that way. But he's agreed to another Q&A, a public Q&A with me in Oregon at the McMinnville, uh, McMenamin's UFO Festival. And um, I'm excited about that because it's kind of like Bob coming out of his shell and sharing a little bit more information. As long as people are kind to him, he'll tell you his story. Do you think that the reason for this change is people's attitude to the topic of UFOs and extraterrestrials? Do you see that playing into why maybe it's a little easier for Bob to come out and talk? I do, I do. See, they raked him across the coals. I mean, the UFO people and the debunkers and everybody, you know, 30 years ago. But I think now there's some vindication because, look, he said our government has a program to study UFOs. And back then, you're like, all right, sure, man. You know, that BS. Well, we now know that the government does have a program to study UFOs. We know about one of them. However, I know for a fact there are multiple. And I think that those programs will be named later. But we know about one now. So I think that climate is very different. Interestingly enough, at this event in Oregon, I also got a friend of mine named Commander David Fravor. He's the fighter pilot that engaged the Tic Tac UFO off of the coast of California, the very famous case that the New York Times talked about. Although I broke that story twice before the New York Times did in December of 2017, because I knew Commander Fravor prior to that. Well, he's coming as well. So for the first time, we've got Commander Fravor and Bob Lazar, and they're both going to be at this event. And I'm going to be interviewing Commander Fravor. Now, the craft Commander Fravor saw also appeared to be a gravitational craft. So what a cool conversation that's going to be, where you got a fighter pilot who saw a gravitational UFO 
And then Bob Lazar, who says he worked on one. I cannot wait. <laughs> oh my God, that's how, I'm, I'm going to have to uh, get a plane ticket or something because that sounds like an amazing time. Uh, Genevieve, I believe you got one question, but let me, let me just get this question in before we let Jeremy go because I'm always looking at weird things and whatnot. And I caught something in your documentary. And I don't know if you did this knowingly or not, but you uh, snuck in towards the end footage from a Betty Boop cartoon. And I know this cartoon very well. <laughs> uh, and the title of this, and you can find it on YouTube. I believe there's even like a remaster HD version, but it's called Bimbo's Initiation. And I remember being made aware of this short cartoon of a few years ago when I started doing the show and we were talking about secret societies and whatnot. And there's this whole little uh, mystery surrounding this, this uh, black and white cartoon, whether it has to do with somebody that knew about secret societies or not. Did you include that just because of that little fun fact? Or was that just something that you thought <laughs> would be a, a cool little thing to sneak in there? Every frame of my movie, sometimes single frames of my movie, was thought out and was intentional. In my movie, there are dozens and dozens of Easter eggs of things that I figure over time people are going to figure out. There's even Morse code at one point inside my film. So I just made it, you know, as I'm making a film, I wanted to layer it so people would watch it over and over and try to find these things that will give them more information. It's not because I can't just say it all. But it's also because when you're using the art form of film as a medium to capture the imagination of people, right? You want it to be something that people want to watch again. They want to discover. They want to look into it. They want to explore it. Because the more they can kind of understand the content, the better grasp they're going to have of, of the story. So a blanket statement is in my film, every frame is intentional. And there's a lot of things hidden in there for discovery. So people can kind of like choose your own adventure and, and, and learn about it. That cartoon itself, the only uh, you know implication for me, and it's so funny you picked up on that. Nobody has asked me about that. Um, it wasn't about these other you know, conspiracies. Uh, for me, it was because in that cartoon, you see this impossible thing. You see this guy being, this uh, character being chased and tormented and run after and stabbed at and bitten at and burned. And this, and th and this character just keeps running, 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 trying to get ahead of, of all these things which are tormenting him. And that is very similar to how I see what has happened to Bob Lazar is anywhere he turns, you know, he's poked, bitten, stabbed, you know, that, that is the life that he had to lead you know, un until now, I think. Now, I think things are, for once in his life, to some degree at peace. Wow. Thanks for answering that question. Uh, Genevieve? Well, assuming that your um, film series, Extraordinary Beliefs by Jeremy Kenyon Lockyer, Corbell, assuming that's still ongoing, what do we have to maybe look forward to in the future? Yeah, wow. Uh, th that is the umbrella term for my film work is called Extraordinary Beliefs. And it's uh, covered everything from nanotechnology to these, this something called the space drive, which is this aerospace uh, propulsion system, all the way through to UFOs, alleged alien implants, Skinwalker Ranch. What's next? Well, I have a lot of films that are practically done. 
I just am deciding what is best to engage with public consciousness. So I knew that Skinwalker Ranch was really important to put out at that time with George Knapp because of the changeover of ownership. And I knew the Lazar story is important because of the 30-year kind of anniversary coming up. Uh, Next, I'm very, very interested in this character named, I call him Nanoman. He's a nanophysicist that has done some incredible work. So I'll be doing, dealing with that. Uh, There's, there's a number of things that I I don't think I'm going to say right here, right now, but yeah, there will be exciting content coming your way on a regular basis. (laughs) Very cool. No, it's exciting. And we look forward to it and please, uh, yeah, keep us updated with everything you're working on. Because like I said, you tackle some of the most mysterious, perplexing topics that I know a lot of people want to know more about. And uh, I know we covered a lot of ground here tonight on your documentary, but I still will say that we didn't do it justice. People really, really need to go watch this on their own. And as you said, make up their own minds. So if you don't mind telling the folks at home one more time where they can watch this Bob Lazar documentary that is totally mind-blowing. Awesome. So yeah, my website is extraordinarybeliefs.com. I highly recommend people go to, you know, uh, my Twitter, Instagram, uh, even my YouTube at Jeremy Corbell. That is really great content that you get all the time. And then if you can see this film, Bob Lazar, Area 51 and Flying Saucers on iTunes, Amazon, Vimeo, and there will be a number of other platforms it's coming out on. So yeah, get ready. This film will, will really, I like to say, weaponize your curiosity. It will get you so curious that you will have to start researching for yourself and trying to find out the truth. The biggest success, I think, of this film is cinematically, I'm very happy with this film. I I admire film. I admire cinema. I admire how it it captures people's imagination. And with the animation and the music uh, and and all of this stuff combined, I, I think the film is a really beautiful way to engage a very complex topic of, of a man named Bob Lazar. So, so watch it, enjoy it. You do help me out. I'm an independent filmmaker. So when you buy it on like iTunes, you get all the bonus material. You buy it on Vimeo, you get over two and a half hours of bonus material. You know, do that. You know, support the film, enjoy it, and be ready for your curiosity to be weaponized. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, shout out to Mickey Rourke, who you got to do some uh, voiceover yeah. there. And that was super cool. No, he has such a signature voice. It just... It really added to the to the atmospheric of the of the whole film, so that was really cool. Jeremy, what can I say? This has been a blast, and uh, and we hope to have you back in the future, and you know, talk about your other films and anything else you're working on. Because man, you got you got your finger on the pulse, I can tell, and that is super awesome. Hey, thanks so much, uh, both of you, for for having me on your show. You have a new fan, so I'll be able to listen to your show from now on. So, uh, yeah, Frank and Genevieve, thank you. And, uh, yeah, continue what you're doing, and I'm sure there's a lot more to come. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jeremy. Enjoy the rest of your evening. You too. Take care. That was Jeremy Corbell, who made this amazing documentary, Bob Lazar, Area 51 and Flying Saucers. Definitely go check it out. Like I said, I know we talked a lot about it, but when you watch this stuff, when you watch him, I think that's that was what I really was looking forward to. I I wanted to see him. I wanted to see his expression. I wanted to see the look in his eyes. I wanted to hear his voice to really understand Bob Lazar. And I really got to give props to Jeremy because he really captured who Bob Lazar is. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I know there are a few people... Um 
at least from what I've read online, that, you know, they say that this documentary didn't reveal that much new evidence and that it mainly went over the story as it is and there were a few bits of new information. But like we just said and discussed, it's it's more about, you know, the man behind the story. And it's that that kind of adds to um, the credibility of what he said in the past. And it has a whole different layer and dimension to it. And that's what is also, you know, what makes it so important. Right. And I also learned that Bob Lazar is quite a cool dude. <laughs> oh, he's really <laughs> I chill, wouldn't right? mind to, yeah. <laughs> have a beer with or two or five i don't know <laughs> but yeah definitely check it out bob lazar area 51 and flying saucers jeremy corbell uh was our guest tonight and man i have to say the one thing they got me tonight was when we were kind of speculating a bit and he mentioned that bob lazar felt that these craft could be potentially ancient i mean that really did it for me anyways oh. <laughs> folks if you missed any part of this show don't worry, you'll find it on our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash WOTR radio. We'll also post it on our website, WOTRradio.com. And uh, yeah, check it out. Check out some of the other cool stuff we have on there. As always, I'm Engineer Frank on Twitter, West of the Rockies on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at WOTR radio, Genevieve Uway at Genevieve Uway on Twitter. And uh, you can catch her here doing her very own show, No Added Flavors, Music, Fun Facts, Jokes, and a whole lot more. Genevieve. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you to all the folks at home that were tuning in tonight. I hope they had just as much of a good time as we did. Mm -hmm. Thank um, you for the interaction, yeah, the absolutely. questions. And I know I didn't get to mention everything that was said in the chat, but we got a couple of good questions. In. Yeah, no, I think we did. And um, I'm going to send us all to bed with a little bit of tool because that's great bedtime music, ain't it? No? Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course, I, mean, I guess that's the standard <laughs> lullaby, right? <laughs> and I think they're coming out with a new album soon, so oh, really? get stoked for that. Yeah, here we go, guys. Take care. Be safe. God bless. Don't do anything too crazy. We want to see you back next week. Till then, bye-bye. Bye. West of the Rockies with Frank the Engineer on the Independent FM, Los Angeles.